you know, it's pretty typical if you hear somebody, if you say, if you're in a group and say something like, wealth is a tremendous test of, or it's a tremendous burden to bear, what will always the response be? Yeah, let me have that trial, right? Yeah, I want, I want, I want to try that one. Yeah, or if you say fame is a real, is a real difficult test, uh, let me try that. That's, that's the normal situation. But the reality is, prosperity is perhaps the most difficult trial of all. This is a quote from a British author, Thomas Carlyle. He said, Adversity is sometimes hard upon a man, but for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand adversity. And we see this in the scripture too. If you'd turn with me to James chapter 1, we can actually see it. Now James chapter 1 is a tremendous little treatise on life. It starts with, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And every one of us have trials, tests. We have difficulties. And so he says, count it joy. Why? Because you have a chance to prove your faith and that's really what we're here on the earth for. That's, that's why we're here, is to grow our faith. That is what gives us the, uh, be, that's the real benefit of this life that we'll take with us into the next life. But then he says, uh, don't think that God tempts you. And it's the same root word, but I think the difference in a test and a temptation is the motivation of the one giving it to you. Your algebra teacher gives you a test, but do they want you to fail or pass? They want you to pass, right? A tempter gives you a test, but they want you to fail. And God never wants us to fail. So in verse 9 here of chapter 1, it gives us the two kinds of circumstances that are the most common. He says, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Okay, so a lowly brother. What kind of trial is a lowly brother going to be having? Necessity? Want? Uh, difficulty and and if we are in that situation as we discussed last week the valley like Job uh, when we're in the valley man it's difficult it wasn't last week the week before last it was it was incredibly difficult in the valley and what Job said was blessed be the Lord he, he, he didn't really fold on that. And he said, this is the way to do it. Man, this is just what I needed. This is great for me. This is a really high spot to be in right now because God's given me difficult circumstances. But it just says that. And then it talks about the other end of the spectrum. It says, but let the rich man in his humiliation... Why? Now, why a rich man in humiliation? That, that's not what the world says being rich is. Humiliating. Oh, look how humiliating it is with that fancy car you have. That's not the normal response. But the rich in his humiliation because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with the burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes so the rich man also will fade away in all his pursuits so with this one he has to give an explanation why because this is a really hard one this is a hard perspective to grasp and that's really what we're going to be talking about today i mean all through this terrain of the journey our our life's epic adventure we have this terrain we got the valleys 
And we got the everyday planes where, where most of life happens and most of our opportunity is. Now we have the mountaintops. In all of that terrain, what we really are trying to do is get perspective. Now there's only three things in life we can control. We can control who we trust. We can control our perspective or our attitude. And we can control the actions that we choose to take. And that, that's really it. Everything else that we think we can control, we can't. Uh, most notably, we cannot control our spouse. That doesn't keep us from trying, does it? Uh, we cannot control our children. We cannot control our boss. We cannot control the circumstances around us. We can control who we trust. We can control our perspective. Well, we're mainly talking about perspective here. And perspective largely deals with who we trust. It was interesting, uh, Thomas Carwell's wife has a famous quote as well. I'm just kind of... If, if this was a famous quote and it was given by my wife, I don't think I'd be all that happy. But she said, I'm married for ambition. <laughs> I guess that'd be okay. I mean, you're marrying, she's marrying up. I'm married for ambition. Carlisle has exceeded all my wildest hopes ever imagined of him, and I'm miserable. Well, that's, the, that's what tends to happen with prosperity of any kind. You get there, and it's empty. It just wasn't what you expected to be. So how do we overcome that? Well, it's, it's with uh, perspective. So, we're on this two-minute epic adventure ride we call life. And we've used the analogy of Snow White's scary adventures. And we're all Snow White. Mankind was appointed to be the ruler of all earth. That's what we're supposed to be doing in perfect harmony with God and with one another and with nature. That's the way it was supposed to be. A little, a little higher than the angels even. That's what Psalm 8 says we were appointed to. And yet, because of the fall, we're relegated to life in this scary forest with a dwarfed humanity. Humanity's not like it's supposed to be. Well, what God calls us to do is wash the dwarf's clothes, cheerfully whistle, and, and commune with the animals, right? That, that's what we're supposed to do is cheerfully go about our daily business. We talked about that last, last week, that life in the, on the plains of everyday experience is really where our character is molded the most. But then we'll come along the valleys and the mountaintops, and, and keeping our perspective is incredibly difficult. So, we have three challenges about prosperity we're going to see today, or the danger of, of uh, mountaintop experiences. And we're going to look at materialism, and we're going to look at fame or prestige, and we're going to look at spiritual highs. These are three challenges that we have to mount, and it all has to do with uh, perspective. Well, the philosophy of materialism will take first. Materialism is a philosophy that says my happiness is determined by what I do not yet have. I will be happy if I get that thing. I'll be happy if I have a Porsche. I have a Porsche. I'll be happy if I get a better Porsche or a Ferrari. I'll be happy if I have that wife. No, I'll be happy if I have this girlfriend. 
Now I'll get rid of that wife and this girlfriend becomes... No, I'll be happy if I... You're always chasing something else. And when you define happiness as something you don't have, what can you never be happy with? What you do have. And if you can't be happy with what you do have, you're not going to be happy. So the philosophy of materialism is a philosophy that says you can't ever be happy. It's, it's, uh, it's craziness. We can look at Jeremiah 9.23. Jeremiah 9.23 says this. And this is all in the, in, in the context of God speaking to uh, the nation about disaster that's looming. And he says, Thus says the Lord, 9.23, Jeremiah, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. What did James say is going to happen to riches? It's just passing away, right? All money is on its way through our hands, on its way somewhere else, isn't it? All possessions on our, through our hands, on its way to somewhere else. Clutching onto possessions does nothing but generate fear. Don't let the rich man glory in the riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. I said we saw this in Job, right? We saw that the whole point of Job's suffering was that God liked him best. He's his favorite guy, and he didn't want him to miss out on one opportunity to know God by faith. We see these verses where the angels are stooping down like archaeologists trying to understand about us. And they're trying to understand God through looking at us. And why are they doing that? It's because they can't live by faith. So, glory in this. We get a chance to know God. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says this, He who loves silver will never be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This is also vanity. John Rockefeller was once asked, How much money is enough? And he answered, Just a little more. You know how much John Rockefeller left behind? All of it. Very good. Yes, that's right. He left it behind. All of it behind. Well, the opposite is God's perspective. God's perspective on material wealth. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6. In 1 Timothy 6, we can see God's perspective on uh, material things. 1 Timothy six seventeen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Haughty. I'm better than you. When we, when we elevate ourselves among other people, what we do is create separation. And, and really, the greatest benefit of life is connectedness. So don't, don't be haughty. Nor put your trust in uncertain riches. Where are the riches going? They're just passing through on the way to somewhere else, right? So this is one of the great challenges of having material prosperity. Material prosperity is, causes us to trust in our riches. We have this problem in America. If you make $30,000 a year or $31,000 a year, you are in the upper 1% of all the world. If you make $30,000 a year, upper 1%. So they talk about the 1%. We want the 1% to distribute their earnings. What they mean is they want all the money in America to go somewhere else. That's what they're really talking about. Because all of us are rich. 
If you're at the poverty level, you're in the top 85% of the world. The median income in the world is $1,500 a year. The world, today, not, not 80 years ago, today, $1,500 a year. Because most of the world still does subsistence. Okay? So we are rich. And what we are doing as a nation is beginning to mourn the passing of our great riches. Because we can see it's coming to an end. We've been borrowing and borrowing and borrowing. And and people have a lot of angst and fear. Why? We're trusting in our riches. Don't glory in the riches, Jeremiah said. Glory in knowing me. We have a great opportunity coming in our country, I believe. But no, don't commit, don't be haughty or trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So the crazy thing is materialism that says you are happy when you get something you didn't don't have, which by definition means you can never enjoy what you do have. Just the opposite. God says, I gave you everything to enjoy what you have. Doesn't that make a lot more sense to enjoy what you have? Uh, C.S. Lewis in uh, Screw Tape Letters, I think it is, has the the uh, demon character say, uh, your, I think they call it your patient. Your, your pa- have your patient that the demons are working on this guy. They said, uh, try to make him live in the future all the time because the future is not real. It doesn't exist. And you can have him be afraid of every possible thing that might happen. And you totally neutralize him if you can give him to live in the future. If you can't do that, get him to live in the past. Now, there's a little danger there because the past is real. He might learn some from, from it and bring it into the future. So it's dangerous to be in the past. But at least in the past you can get him to focus on remorse or fear. But don't let him live in the present. The present is where you touch eternity. And if he sits down to have a cup of tea and enjoys his, his uh, circumstances and looks at the trees and says, wow, those trees are beautiful, now you're in grave danger of losing him. Because he's enjoying what he has. Well, that's what God wants for us, is to enjoy what we do have. And look at the very first word here in this passage we read. Verse 17. Command. Us rich people, we need to be shaken up a little bit because we trust in ourselves. We trust in our savings account. We trust in our material possessions. Look, if you have a lot of money, you can control things. If you've traveled around the world, you you, you take out your blue American passport and everything just opens up for you. Uh, that's That's what we're used to. Well... Don't, let's don't be haughty or trust in uncertain riches. God has given us all things to enjoy. Let's look at John chapter 6. See what Jesus says. In John chapter 6, verse 26. Here these people have chased him. And uh, they come to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And then they found him on the other side of the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? This is great. That's a fairly, you know, that's almost like a how are you question, isn't it? When did you come here? They're not seeking to know. And he says and answers them, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You got a free meal. 
Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Now, everlasting life, eternal life has two components. It's a gift, it's a reward, it's an experience. Just like physical life. Birth and then living. And so he's talking here about the experience of everlasting life. Seek for the thing that causes you to experience the gift that you have. And if you can't live your physical life very well if you stop eating food. Well, what is this spiritual food? Well, it's the thing the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set His seal on Him. And we know what this is. It's the words of Jesus. It's the teachings that God's given us to live those things. And when we do that, we're actually having true riches. If we strive for the rewards that God has set for us in the future, and those, those things to which we uh, can acquire after this life, we know those are things we can keep. Anything we have here is going to be eaten up by moths or rust. The things in the eternal life... We can keep forever. So, we can do two things. We can choose a perspective that allows us to enjoy what we have in this life. And we can choose a perspective that brings exponentially greater happiness in the life to come. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has entered into the heart of man what God has in store for those who love Him. If we love Him, we do what He asks us to do. Choosing this perspective helps us avoid the trap of materialism, which can be a real high to try to, try to uh, elevate ourselves materially. Well, the second big thing that we have to avoid is chasing fame. Another word for fame is prestige. The word prestige comes from a Latin root that means to create an illusion, to trick someone. And so it is with fame. If we seek fame, even in small areas, we always end up molding ourselves to be that which we think other people want us to be. And when we do that, we actually end up losing ourselves. Yeah. So let's look at Romans 2. I'll get there. I hear a little buzz among my family here, and I'm going to get to that. Romans 2 and verse 5. Romans 2 verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. So here we are standing before God. And what's God going to do then? He will render to each one according to his deeds. That's a quote from the Old Testament. And here's here's what he's going to give. Here's what he's going to give out. On the one hand, he's going to give eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Now that verse rocks some people's world, but it's not that hard. Because again, eternal life is a gift and a reward. We're not talking about the gift component here. You don't have to seek anything to get that gift. You don't have to do anything to get that gift. You just believe. It's received totally freely. But if you want that gift to have the maximum benefit, then you have to exercise it. And you exercise it by one of the three things that you can do. Making choices to do what God's asked us to do. And what is it you're supposed to do? 
You're supposed to seek three things. We're supposed to seek glory. Now, wait a minute. I thought we were talking about fame as a mountaintop experience that can destroy us. Well, that's if we seek fame the wrong way. One of the great shaping forces of Western civilization is the book, The Iliad. It was the, it was the narrative of the Greeks that shaped their whole culture. And it's spilled right on through to America. And the key figure in the, in the Iliad is Achilles. And the gods come to Achilles and say, Achilles, you get a choice. You can either go to this war and fight and die and be remembered forever. Or you can stay here and live a long and comfortable life. And Achilles says, well, that's a no-brainer. Short and glorious. Because nothing matters about life if you're not remembered. And this was the Greek belief that glory was the thing that was worth seeking. And they, they, they conquered the Eastern Empire with that notion. Unfortunately, their notion of glory was kind of stunted. Not, maybe more than kind of stunted. Because Achilles was nothing more than a self-seeking, selfish brat. Uh, there's another character in the story that actually is quite noble. So they, they, had, they had the mix there. But seeking glory is actually something that is appropriate if you have the glory defined correctly. And look what it is we're supposed to do, because we can see by the contrast, verse 8. But to those who are self-seeking, this is Achilles, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what do they get? Indignation, wrath, anguish on every soul of man who does evil. Okay? So this is the reward part of standing before God. And if we seek self, not too happy of a deal. But if we seek glory, from who? From God. Because what glory is, is when an observer sees our true essence. That's all glory is. And here we are, we're standing before God. And when God says, what you did was awesome, that's what we're really after. When God says, hey, I want to talk to you about, I want to talk to my dad about you. I, I want to confess you before my father. Okay, Th that's, that's what we want. And immortality, legacy. We visited the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. It's really cool. I love baseball. And I saw the plaque there for Babe Ruth. And I saw the plaque for Mickey Mantle. It was really neat. And then I saw all these old other plaques. Probably two-thirds, 75% of them. I had no idea who these people were. Never heard of them. They're in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I'm a baseball fan. I never heard of them. They're forgotten. And you know what? Most of the rest of those guys, you skip one more generation, they'll be forgotten too. I knew the ones that I had experienced. And ultimately, almost everybody's forgotten. But not in God's Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, uh, if you have made any money at all, somebody from your alma mater will come at some point and say, we can name something after you. We can even have you take out an insurance policy and only for $9.99 a month. You can donate a million dollars to the university when you die and then after everybody's forgotten about you and nobody cares, we'll put your name on a building that everybody will walk by and pay no attention to. 
But you'll be famous. You won't be forgotten. Boy, people sign up. And you walk out of the university, you walk by, and I wonder who that was. They're forgotten. But not in this one. Not in this one. So we have true fame, we have false fame. False fame is a mountaintop that doesn't deliver. Well, there's another aspect to fame. That is uh, heroism. One of the ways we can get famous is by being a hero. That's what that's what Achilles was trying to do. I, I think a lot of guys are athletes, put themselves in jeopardy. I mean, some people do some pretty crazy things to try to get fame. Uh, the, the, some of it uh, borders on self-destruction. But you know, if again, if we define this correctly. It can be incredibly powerful. Last week, when I did the sermon, I showed you this Revelation 21, this string of adjectives that goes into this uh, group of people who are going to have their part in the lake that burns with fire. Unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, idolaters, sorcerers. And the the first word in that string is cowardly. So God doesn't like cowardice. He loves heroism. But what is it, the heroism, that He asks us to do? What's the snow white thing He asks us to do? He asks us when we get abused, like the stepmother abused us, to keep a cheerful attitude and say, boy, this is just what I needed. The Job experience. And then He asks us every day, after we keep washing the clothes of all these dwarfed humanity and fixing meals for people that aren't really particularly... um, uh, thankful for it, he asks us to maintain a cheerful attitude and say, "Well, this is just what I needed." And then we have when we have mountaintop experiences, and he asks us to keep our head, not to glory in those experiences, but to remain humble, not to trust in certain uncertain riches. Uh, David Dunn is about to release a new song, and it's called "Ready to Be Myself." And it's a, it's a biographical song because he is a guy who loves to seek fame. And fame can be sought in very small circles. It doesn't have to be broadly spread. And he says this, I'm tired of the way, the way that I change. I rearrange myself to be the man that everybody loves. So I become someone I'm not. I've been someone else and I'm ready to be myself. Well, he realized in his little circle by adapting and morphing to be someone people liked, he was actually losing his own identity. He didn't even know who he was. I looked at a little bit of the biography of Elvis Presley who grew up in a strong church he, he took a gospel singing group with him everywhere he went. He made gospel albums. I, there's no reason for me to think that Elvis Presley wasn't a devout believer. But he chased this fame thing. And when he died, he was rich and famous and lonely and miserable. Because he lost himself. Well, by letting go of, who, of trying to become who we think others want to be and instead seek excellence in serving others and actually deflecting instead of being self-seeking, seeking what God wants 
from us, to seek honor from Him and glory from Him and immortality from Him. When we lay down our life for others, we actually are creating real fame and being true to who God made us in the first place. And we're also being grateful for who we are. Have you always, have, how many of you would be willing to say that you've never said, I wish I was something other than you are? I always wished I was taller. I wanted to be a really good basketball player. Uh, and I wasn't very talented. So you need, to, you need to have some kind of competitive advantage if you're, if you're not fast and, and, or, or dexterous, you know. Uh, everybody always wishes something and then you get older and say, well, I'm really glad I'm not taller, you know. But the, th- this, this is what we tend to do. But by having this proper perspective, we can actually enjoy who we are and be chasing that which God planted in us, fame that will last forever by laying our lives down and serving others. Well, the last thing that we can talk about is experiential prosperity, spiritual highs. And this is a particular problem, I think, in evangelicalism. I'm afraid that we often construct our services to try to create these every week. So let's look at Matthew 17... Verse 1 through 9. In my opinion, this is a comedy routine here that we're going to see. So, Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain. So, we're going to have a mountaintop experience that occurs on a mountaintop here. This is literal and figurative both. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as the light, and behold, Moses and Eliza appeared to them, talking with him. So here you are, just try to put yourself in the mindset. You're a Jewish uh, fisherman. By the time you're 15, you know the Old Testament word for word. Your dream was always to be a rabbi. You didn't make it, the cut. You became a fisherman. You're a rough, tough guy. You kind of just join the zealots. So you're going to overthrow Rome. And then along comes this rabbi and says, follow me. So you get to follow, your dreams come true. And not only that, this guy is the king. So you're going to get to overthrow Rome and put this king in. The main thing you want to be is the secretary of state, not the secretary of labor. That's, you want to sit on the right hand. You know, that's the main. So this is your mentality. And you've heard all these things. And all of a sudden, here you are on the mountain, and there's Moses and Elijah and the king transfigured. Would that be the best day of your life or what? And so here's what they do. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. What's he want to do? Yeah, let's just stay here. This is awesome. This is my best day ever. Now that you brought us up here, I see what the plan is, and I've got a plan for us to stay here. And this, I think, is hilarious. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, and I'm well pleased hear him. Peter, shut up. Okay, you're talk this is a really cool time and you're talking. And you should be listening. And the disciples heard it and fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. So Peter went from hey, I got a plan to on my face. 
And then Jesus picks them up and says, hey, don't be afraid. And then he took them back down the mountain. So, this is a great picture for a mountaintop experience. How did they get up to the mountaintop? They followed Jesus up there. He, he took them up there. Okay? Did they go up there and then invite Jesus? No, they didn't manufacture this mountaintop experience. God gave it to them. They got there by following Jesus. And the minute they get there, what did they do? Stop following and stop listening. Isn't that what we do? They stopped following and stopped listening. And what Jesus did immediately after the mountaintop experience is what? Lead them back down. Now, did that mountaintop experience have an impact? Yes, it did. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. If we look at 2 Peter chapter 1, you, you'll actually see, that's uh, chapter 1 verse 16, you'll actually see here, pro- probably 2 Peter, when he writes this, he's thinking about this event. Peter. 2 Peter 1.16 For we did not follow cunningly devised fables which we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't make this stuff up. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. I saw this with my own eyes. I'm telling you a first-hand account. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. You think those words etched into His mind? Hey, why don't we do this? Shut up. So He he got that, don't you think? And And this made a huge impact on Peter, which is why God takes us to the mountain to give experiences. It's so that we can be shaped and then go back to the plains and live everyday life. It's not, we're not supposed to seek to find these things. God will sometimes lead us to them. But then He'll lead us back down again. Because just staying on the mountaintop is not what Christianity is supposed to be about. Well, if we go back to 1 Peter 1, we can kind of see why this is so. And I've mentioned this already. But 1 Peter 1, verse 12. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. And this Greek word look into is the word like an archaeologist stooping down, studying something very carefully. So the angels are stooping down trying to look into this stuff. It fascinates them. There's a similar verse in Ephesians 3.10. We talked about this in the Job passage. For the manifold wisdom of God is revealed by the church, by us, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The angels are watching us to understand about God. Well, is it because God's an insufficient teacher? I mean, they've been in His presence for eons. Is it because they're blind and they don't? No, they can't be blind because then they couldn't look down and stoop and see. There's only one thing I can think of that they would need to learn through us that they can't learn from God directly. And that's what it's like to know God by faith. This ability to know God by faith, it's a a once-in-an-existence opportunity. And if we blow it, I believe we will be sorry forevermore until the tears are wiped away. 
because we don't get another chance. There's no faith and no hope in heaven. You can't have faith in what you see. You can't hope for what you have. So we have this amazing opportunity to overcome materialism by having faith that acquiring things that we don't yet see that are stored for us in heaven are more real than the things that are passing through our hands and going to someone else. And by having that faith, we gain something that really God says, I'd tell you if you could understand it, but you can't even understand how awesome this is. The angels are trying to understand. They're smarter than we are. And by seeking honor and glory from God, a fame that will last forever and ever, but it's fame that we can't really see. It's fame that's beyond our, our threshold of our eyes. We're seeking it by faith. And by doing that, something incredible is happening to us that we can't even understand. And, and then by seeking, what was the third one? Spirit, yeah. By, by allow, thank you very much, Billy. By, by, by allowing the spiritual highs to be that which God gives to us rather than something we code to try to manufacture, like, hey, let's do this and this and this, and then we'll be... By just following Jesus. We follow Him wherever we go. We follow Him up to the mountain. We follow Him back down. By continuing to listen to Him and follow Him, then we are walking by faith. And when we do that, we get to know God. Revelation 3, we can close with. Revelation chapter 3, he says to the lukewarm church, in verse 19, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Everybody wants a parent that lets them have everything, but that's not good parenting, right? Everyone I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Uh, You know, I started too late. Hang on. Verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness, instead of shame we want honor, may not be revealed. And anoint with your eyes, eye salve, that you may be, see. So, how do you buy gold from God? That's the question. Well, now he's going to answer it. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice. If anyone hears my voice. We started with, don't glory in your riches. Or don't glory in your wisdom. Glory in knowing me. And look what happens if we hear His voice and open the door. I'll come in and dine with Him. We get fellowship and knowledge with Jesus. This is how you become truly rich, is by walking with God. Well, that's typically going to happen in valleys. Well, in valleys, we're going to have a real opportunity to know God. But it's harder on the plains of everyday life. Because we don't see that. We think everything's just routine there. Well, it's the routines of life where we really get to exercise what it means to be a servant. And then when God does take us up on the mountaintop, if we'll just keep following Him and follow Him right back down, we can get preparation for life 
on the plains and in the valleys. Because ultimately what we want is to know God by faith and take the maximum opportunity of this life. God, thank you for the amazing words you give us in this word that uh, you left with us. Thank you for your spirit that you, uh, that you put into us. Thank you that as we walk along, you will chasten us and even tell us to shut up and listen. And I thank you for these wonderful, wonderful Three Stooges disciples that gave us their um, mishaps so we can be inspired that those are guys that changed the world and they're just knuckleheads. And I pray that you would just cause us to take all this in and be faithful no matter what the terrain of our journey happens to be. Take advantage of the valleys. Uh, take advantage of the plains and take advantage of the mountains because we choose the perspective that you have given us the opportunity to choose. And in doing so, we trust you and we make choices to take actions consistent with what you tell us to do. And in doing so, God, help us believe that we'll be fulfilled in everything you made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you to uh, I want you to welcome my, my friends here.